This podcast episode is made possible in part by a grant from Lilly. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Debu Tripathi, Professor and Chair of Breast Medical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. A noted researcher, Dr. Tripathi joins us to discuss breast cancer biomarkers, the molecules that help doctors distinguish breast cancer cells from healthy cells. Biomarkers help you and your doctor make decisions about the treatments that are best for your unique situation. Dr. Tripathi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. We're very excited for you to explain this very complicated topic to us. I gave a brief description of what biomarkers are in the introduction, but I'm wondering how do you talk about biomarkers when you're talking to your patients? Well, I tell them that the field of cancer in general has gone a long way. Breast cancer and many others are now driven by, in terms of treatment decisions, are driven by uh, what we term biomarkers. And these are characteristics of the tumor that alter their behavior or govern their behavior particularly in the context of being able to choose a treatment. We now know uh, of many, although not all, of what we call drivers. These are changes that occur to cells that make them go from normal to malignant. Uh, Obviously, we know, we've known for many years, that one of the common abnormalities is that they grow more rapidly and they don't know when to stop growing. But now we know what actually Uh, governs that and what drives that to a certain extent. We obviously have much more to learn, but we've started to apply that knowledge in different ways, uh, particularly not only to prognosticate, but more importantly, to choose the therapy. In many cases, uh, we've known about the targets for many years, like the estrogen receptor uh, was actually first postulated over a hundred years ago when a surgeon named George Beetson, a Scottish surgeon, made the connection between the breast and the ovaries only because of uh, menstrual periods and the pattern uh, that uh, women had and also pregnancy and postulated that maybe there was some factor that the ovaries were making. He had no idea what it was, but he did ophorectomies on patients and found that for some of them it really helped. And then, of course, it was uh, many decades later that we discovered estrogen and other hormones and then the estrogen receptor being on cancer cells in the 60s and 70s, and we've been using that as a biomarker since then. So that's one of the older examples. Uh, But for the most part, they are either proteins and more recently genetic alterations, changes in our genome, different than what we call mutations is when the base pairs are altered. And that actually governs uh, how cells grow and how fast they grow. Uh, And a lot of it is linked to biology and new uh, discoveries. But these are now standard assays that we do, and they vary among different cancers. For breast cancer specifically, uh, there's a long list of them, and we'll review them uh, later today. But at a very basic level, uh, they are functional proteins or genes. And what I mean by that is they alter the way a cell behaves 
And uh, many of these are necessary to test for in order to choose the right treatment. Okay, thank you. That makes sense. And I know sometimes there's a little confusion about biomarkers because we do seem to have a lot of names for them, kind of depending on what the biomarker is. As you've said, it could be a protein, it could be a, a gene mutation. So I know sometimes biomarker testing is called tumor marker testing. It could be called genomic profiling. It could be called genomic assays, genomic testing. But really, if I'm understanding this correctly, they're all biomarkers that that you as an oncologist use to figure out what's the best treatment and how is this cancer going to behave? Yes, that's right. Uh, there are many ways to classify biomarkers, and th they are different types. One of the more common ways we classify them is if they are the DNA. That is the central template of information that is uh, that governs life in general. Uh, everything is coded off DNA, which is made up of four base pairs, and the sequence of the DNA tells the body uh, how to build the building blocks of proteins, how to assemble the amino acids. So when we're looking at the DNA, we can pick up mutations that may be important in cancer. And uh, more recently, a lot of our uh, biomarkers are actual sequence of DNA, either mutations of DNA, where it changes the behavior of the protein that is encoded by the DNA, or sometimes the DNA is lost. We call those deletions. Sometimes the DNA is amplified. We call those amplifications, and that leads to making more of the protein. Now, sometimes we test the protein itself, and uh, we can use special stains that look at the proteins on the surface of cells, or sometimes they're inside the cells. And these stains are antibodies that either have a color on them or some way for the uh, microbiologist or the pathologist to actually uh, be able to discern. DNA requires that we get some material from the tumor to sequence, but now we can actually find small amounts of tumor DNA just circulating in the blood, and we call those liquid biopsies. And then finally, there's RNA. DNA is encoded into RNA, and then RNA is encoded into proteins. RNA is very unstable, and it's hard to test, but we can sometimes run RNA tests on the tumor as well. And there are some cases in which that is the best way to actually pick up a genetic abnormality is through the RNA. Uh, it gives you a better look at things that you may not pick from sequencing the DNA. And I won't go into the uh, biology as to how DNA is processed, but suffice it to say that uh, between DNA, RNA, and protein, that generally constitutes what are most of the biomarkers that we uh, test, and they can be tested uh, generally directly on the tumor itself, or sometimes you can measure it in the blood. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about breast cancer biomarkers specifically. I would group them, please tell me if this is correct, into sort of three broad categories. We have these, these biomarkers that pretty much every breast cancer is going to be tested for. And then we have a group. Now we may test for these depending on what like the stage of the cancer or the size of the cancer, other characteristics like that. And then um, I feel like there are some biomarkers that are more done in studies. Like we're not really sure how to use them yet. So there are a lot of studies going on. So if you agree with that, I'd like to discuss them in that order. So we'll start with the biomarkers that 
every breast cancer is tested for. And to me, that means the estrogen receptor status, the progesterone receptor status, and HER2 status. And I think those all fall into what you were talking as proteins, if I'm right. Um, so could you talk a little bit about those and, and why is it that those are always tested for? Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, there are some tests that help us with both early stage and advanced stage, and they're very basic, and we've been doing them for many years. The basic ones that you mentioned, the estrogen and progesterone receptors and HER2, which is also a receptor. And then there's another one called the proliferative antigen called KI67, uh, which is a protein that is seen when a cell is dividing. So it gives us a sense as to how aggressive a cell might be. And these are tested in every case of cancer, as you mentioned, including early stage. The estrogen receptor tells us whether it is more likely than not that that cancer actually grows under the drive of estrogen, that estrogen actually promotes its growth, and that drugs that block estrogen binding to the estrogen receptor makes the cell grow, and that tells us that hormonal therapy is going to be an important treatment. And in patients that have early stage of breast cancer and advanced stage breast cancer, that's an essential protein that we always check for. And I'll also add that sometimes that can change. Uh, when patients develop a recurrence of their cancer, it's sometimes all of the receptors and even the mutations may be different in the cells that metastasize. And the reason that that happens is because of uh, what we call evolution. Just like evolution of the species, cancers can evolve in the sense that one out of a million cancer cells may develop a new mutation. For example, it may be a mutation that makes it lose its estrogen receptor. And that particular small uh, number of cells or single cell spreads and starts to grow. And let's say the patient's already on hormonal therapy, the hormone receptor positive cancer cells are going to be checked in their growth. And the only ones that are going to grow are the estrogen receptor subset, but eventually they take over the tumor. So you do see shifts in biomarkers. So when patients uh, either recur or uh, progress, we may repeat those biomarkers. So many times we're doing them several times. But estrogen and progesterone receptor together tell us that hormonal therapy is going to work. Estrogen receptor is probably the more important one. And HER2, which stands for the human epithelial receptor, is a protein that is expressed in about 20, maybe 25 percent of all cases. And that growth factor was discovered later in the mid-80s, and uh, antibodies against that receptor were found to uh, slow down the growth of those cells. And we now use that as to tell us whether patients may benefit from anti-virtue therapies uh, like trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin. And we use that both in early stage and advanced stage. So that's why those are the basic biomarkers that we're always going to get. And sometimes, like I said, if we're doing a second biopsy, we may repeat it. Let's say a patient uh, has a recurrence and that recurrence is uh, many years later, we, we are almost always going to test it. Or even if someone has their cancer well controlled, but one part of the tumor is growing, uh, let's say someone has advanced uh, breast cancer and one of the lipid lesions is going much more rapidly, we may actually biopsy that and see if that's different from the last set of results uh, we got. Uh, so those uh, are, in fact, the, the basic ones that uh, we are doing all the time. And the last one I mentioned, the proliferative 
index or something. We're not quite sure how to use that test yet, but uh, the more rapid uh, cancer is growing, it'll have a higher percentage of cells that make this T67 protein. And there are some drugs that we use for early stage cancer that actually depend on how high that T67 number is. So it has also become one of the basic four uh, proteins that we test uh, uh, primarily in early stage. We don't use key 67 so much in advanced stage, uh, but certainly est uh, estrogen, uh, progesterone, and HER2 receptor uh, retest on recurrence and progression. Okay. I do have one uh, question about the KI67, the proliferative protein. Um, if somebody was diagnosed with early stage disease and that level was high, would that make it more likely that chemotherapy might be recommended because the cancer would be considered more aggressive? Yes, we are starting to use it in very defined ways. One thing about P67 is it, uh, there is a lot of variability in how different pathologists will read it because not only does it have to be stained in a consistent way, but the judgment of the pathologist in terms of how deep the intensity is makes it a very subjective test. Now, nowadays, many of the immunohistochemical testing, so what immunohistochemical testing means is if we're using an antibody, usually it's an antibody that is tagged with a color so that the pathologist can easily identify it. And these uh, tests are now being read by an automated reader, a digitized reader, and that makes the reading a little more consistent. So I would say that over the last few years, there's a little more uniformity in reading key 67, and we are using it. But we use the KI 67 in a very defined way because there's still some concern about the variability in how it's read. When we don't use it just on its own, even though higher numbers generally indicate higher proliferation indexes, and the reason is that we have some better tests. One of the biomarkers that we're now using more often in early stage breast cancer, in addition to ERPR and HER2, is uh, what's called gene profiling. And this is an RNA-based test because RNA correlates very well with the amount of protein there is. Uh, but it's easier to measure, especially when you're measuring multiple different proteins. And over the years, we've started to use gene profiling to tell us which cancers are, are more likely to recur. This is for early stage cancers that are generally treated with surgery and maybe medical therapy. And most patients are cured. But some patients will develop a recurrence and looking at multiple genes at the RNA level, remember DNA is transcribed into RNA and RNA into protein. So at the RNA level, that intermediate level can let us look at many genes and we can recognize patterns of these gene, gene expressions that have been over the years validated to show higher risk of recurrence or uh, a better response to chemotherapy. Uh, many patients don't need chemotherapy for early stage breast cancer. In the years past, we probably were over-treating patients. But when we started to look at large collections of patient cases and the tumors that we had banned, we were able to start to go back with this new technology, looking at RNA, and be able to discern which ones had a higher risk of recurrence. And now these are the commercially available tests that we tend to run particularly in hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative cancers, which is about two thirds of all cancers. We now use the gene profiling assay to identify those that are at higher risk. So key 67 has fallen a little bit by the wayside when it comes to 
that particular measure. But it is still used in cases where we're now looking at adjuvant therapy with some of the newer drugs that have entered into the field. We used to use primarily hormonal therapy and chemotherapy, but now we're using some of the biological drugs like cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors that uh, were only used in advanced stage breast cancer, but in the last few years have been tried in trials that are showing lower risks of recurrence when you take these drugs for two to three years along with hormonal therapy. And one of those trials actually used T67 to determine higher risk patients. And so that is a test that we use in that case. There's some other newer areas that are not quite ready for us to use, although in some parts of the world they are using it. And that is, interestingly enough, when someone gets hormonal therapy for a brief period of time and their tumor is biopsied after the hormonal therapy, the key 67 drops if that tumor is very sensitive to hormonal therapy to the point that they may not need chemotherapy. So I won't say this is the standard of care yet, but it is an area where a drop in the KI-67 with hormonal therapy may uh, tell us that someone we otherwise might have used chemotherapy with may, may not need it. But today, really, the most important test we use is just the anatomic stage, how, how big the tumor is and whether the lymph nodes are involved. But in some cases, like node-negative breast cancer or when you have one to three lymph nodes, we're using the gene profiling assay called uh, Oncotype. There's another one called the Mammoprint. Uh, there's another one called the Breast Cancer Index. There's several of these uh, that have all been shown to be helpful in not only prognosticating, but discern who uh, or who may not need chemotherapy. So I would say that in addition to the major uh, biomarkers, we mentioned estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 receptor, and to some extent, key 67 the gene profiling now is something we're using in early stage breast cancer. We're not using it in advanced uh, breast cancer, and that's a, a, an RNA uh, assay. Okay, thank you. You must have been reading my mind because that was going to be my next question, that these uh, genomic assays, genomic tests like Oncotype, like Mammoprint, those are done, they're common, but they're not done on every single tumor because my understanding in most cases, not all, um, I think there are six total genomic assays if you count the DCIS, the Oncotype DCIS test. They're done on, as you said, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative disease. I think there's one that can be done whether it's hormone receptor positive or hormone receptor negative. So yeah, so I lump those into, those are tests that might be done they are more common than some of the other ones, but it really does need to be done on that early stage hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease. So thank you for explaining that. Um, I'd like to move on to some of the other biomarkers that might be tested for. And I, I'm just I'm going to list them and ask you about them. I hope that's okay because there's quite a few. So the first one I think that is probably people have heard about more because of Keytruda would be PDL1 status. So if you could talk a little bit about that. That's right. This is one that we've been using relatively recently. Uh, PDL1 is a protein that is known as a checkpoint. Uh, over the years, we've learned that the immune system actually can fight cancer. In fact, the immune system probably protects us from cancers that we may not even know. And there may be one or two cells in our body uh, that uh, the mutation was enough to actually start the, the very beginnings of cancer. But the body and the immune system can recognize 
it as a foreign protein, just like it was, as though it was a bacteria or a virus. But the immune system has a much harder time picking up cancer cells because most of the proteins are the same as our own body's proteins. A few of them are different. They're subtly different. And, um, and, and then the immune system may kick in or it may get overwhelmed. And uh, people that are immunosuppressed have a higher frequency of certain types of cancers. The field of uh, immunology and breast cancer has been around for a very long time, but we never had the tools to really understand it well. We've known for decades that sometimes we see a lot of lymphocytes around the tumor. It's almost like the immune system is trying to do something, but not able to. And sure enough, that is the case. As we've uh, develop more sophisticated tools to look at proteins and genes, we found that some cancers uh, survive because they adapt to the immune attack. What they do is they use parts of the immune system that have always been there to protect us from over-exuberant immune reactions. And when we get an infection, um, the immune system kicks into high gear and it causes a lot of inflammation. It actually causes some tissue damage and irritation to wipe out the infection. And if that were to continue, it might harm the host. We've all, we all know that when we get a virus, you get the fevers and chills and that you feel crummy. And that's when the virus is replicating and we, you're, uh, you have that kind of illness. But then the longer phase of it is the recovery phase when you have the runny nose and the cough. And by then, the virus has been cleared. And what you're dealing with really are the after effects of that exuberant immune system and all the what are called cytokines. These are chemicals that, um, uh, that, that can kill bacteria and viruses, but uh, they do cause damage. And in order for that to wane away quickly, the body has what are called checkpoints and they make the immune system recede. Well, uh, you know, cancer is survival of the fittest, right? So if a cancer cell has, happens to have a particular mutation that allows it to activate these so-called checkpoints, it's going to give it a, an advantage in growing. And so uh, we find that uh, many tumors actually have these checkpoints um, upregulated and it protects them from immune destruction. Now we have tools to now attack those checkpoints. PDL1 is one of them, PD1 and 2 is another one, and there, there's many others that, that we're still investigating. But the uh, ones that uh, attack that particular checkpoint system, uh, PD1, PD2, PDL1 system, are the ones that were first now. Um, tested and, and now available for many types of cancers. So PDL one is the ligand that binds the, the PD receptor. And when tumor cells express that and the immune cells express that, that makes it more likely that that tumor will respond to immunotherapy. So there are some situations in which we need to check for that checkpoint before we prescribe immunotherapy. In breast cancer, the uh, subtype that responds best to immunotherapy is the triple negative subtype, which is about 20% of cancers. So for triple negative breast cancers that are advanced, uh, we check for PDL1 to see if there's a chance that patients might respond. When you're PDL1 negative, the chances of responding are very low, although some people do respond. And when even when it's PDL1 positive, not everyone responds, but those are the only groups that we uh, treat because immunotherapy has side effects. We wouldn't want to use it indiscriminately. Now, interestingly, uh, immunotherapy was first approved in, in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, advanced triple negative breast cancer, in around 2019, and and it required PDL1 testing. We knew that the uh, that it made a difference, but in early stage breast cancer, 
Uh, we did trials to add immunotherapy to standard chemotherapy and found that patients did better. And in 2021, it was actually approved for early stage breast cancer. But interestingly, it was equally effective regardless of the pdl one status. So for early stage triple negative breast cancer, if it's stage two or higher, we use chemotherapy along with immunotherapy, and we actually use it before surgery and then do surgery afterwards. Uh, and uh, we don't check for pdl one in that situation, but for advanced breast cancer that's triple negative, we, we generally do, especially for first-line therapy, we tend to use it as the initial treatment. Okay, thank you. Um, I, now I want to talk about BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation status. I know there are medicines called PARP inhibitors. So if somebody has advanced stage disease, you test for that. So could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So this is a whole category of mutations that we call germline mutations, and these are inherited. And this is a very important distinction because many of the tumor uh, genetic testing we do on the tumor itself is only on the tumor. But BRCA1 and 2 are germline mutations that confer a familial risk. So when we see patients who ha have developed breast cancer at a young age, or those that have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, which also tracks with some of the mutations that we see, we recommend what's called germline genetic testing. And that's, that can be done with any cell. You don't need tumor cells. In fact, it's better to have normal cells. That way you won't be confusing it with mutations that may only be in the tumor. And you can either test the blood or a cheek swab, just get some cells from the mouth. That's, those are common ways to do that type of testing. Uh, and the first um, susceptibility genes to be identified was BRCA1 and then BRCA2, which gives you a very high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. But now we've identified uh, many other genes. You know, there's probably are six or 700 tumor susceptibility genes. Some, some are very rare and infrequent. But now that we can do panel testing and sequence the whole genome, we order a lot of these multi-panel genes to test these in, in patients who uh, have a family history or are very young or have multiple cancers. But because the tests have become more precise, and we used to get a lot of these uh, variants of unknown significance, so alterations that we didn't know if they were a disease-causing mutation or just a benign variant. But now that we have followed many patients over many years, uh, these numbers of VUS, variants of unknown significance, are much less. We feel more confident in testing patients, even if they have a lower chance of having one of these mutations. So we always test patients that have a strong family history at a young age, but we're also testing patients with more advanced breast cancer, because when these genes were first identified, it was mostly to know who, who in the family had the cancer and then to initiate surveillance or even in some case preventive surgery like mastectomy or ophorectomy once the patient got to a certain age. Uh, but as we've learned more about the biology of some of these germline mutations, we're also learning that the mutation leads to other cellular abnormalities that can be targeted with certain drugs. And uh, BRCA1 and 2, for example, are involved in DNA repair, which sort of makes sense. If you don't repair your DNA well, you're more susceptible to get mutations, including those that can be cancer-causing. And because there are several ways we can repair our DNA, uh, it was discovered that people who have BRCA1 and 2 mutations, their tumor cells can't repair DNA. So if you knock out another type of DNA repair, now the cell is left with no way to repair its DNA and 
uh, it's it's what's called a synthetic lethal defect. In other words, the fact that uh, the B a BRCA mutation already exists in those cancers, and now you're knocking down another a DNA repair pathway, uh, it's an effective drug, and and those cancer cells can uh, can be uh, killed or or damaged to, to a point where these PARP inhibitors now are like other drugs we use. They can cause bring about remissions and control cancers. And so we now want to test patients, in addition to patients with strong family history, anyone with advanced breast cancer now, we check just to make sure because it turns out that a strong family history or cancer at a young age doesn't pick up all the people that have BRCA1 and 2 mutations. And now there's a whole bunch of other uh, mutations, PALB2, CHECK2, there's a whole list of them uh, that we can uh, test for. But so far, CARP inhibitors are only approved for BRCA1 and 2. There's some evidence that they work for some of these other mutations, and um, eventually they may be approved for them as well. But, but there's a whole new generation of drugs now called DNA damage repair inhibitors that are being tested for people that have a variety of these uh, mutations. And so, you know, the field marches along. It probably won't be long before we have uh, these drugs uh, available uh, for these and other tumors. And that's why this field is so important, because I know that we're going to get into this later, but I'll just bring it up now that in addition to uh, testing for um, clinical need, where we have a proven reason how we're going to use that information, we're building it into many of our clinical trials. And we are starting to learn now when a new drug is being studied and hopefully will become approved, the FDA now is expecting the maker of the drug to not only show that the drug is effective, but to also define which biomarkers predict who's going to respond to it. And we've been, as a, a scientists in the field, we've been urging drug companies to invest the money in doing biomarker research. And they were very reluctant to do that because it raised their costs and they didn't see the immediate benefit. But after years of showing these benefits, they flipped. And now they want to do it and they're running it and they're investing in it. And of course, scientists are, and we're collaborating with worldwide consortiums, especially for rare tumors or rarer subtypes of breast cancer, to really understand which genes are, are driving cancer, not only for diagnostics, but eventually knowing the genetic makeup and how the proteins are affected allows us to develop better drugs against people that carry specific mutations. And when it used to be that we only tested breast cancer patients for the mutations we knew of that were important in breast cancer, we are now testing for mutations that are rarely seen in breast cancer, but are more seen in melanoma or renal cell cancer or some other cancer, because some of the drugs are now being approved in what we call a tumor agnostic fashion. That means that if you have that mutation in your tumor, no matter what uh, cancer you have, you might benefit from that drug. So, um, uh, not only uh, are we now interested in testing germline mutations, uh, as I was mentioning, but also tumor mutations in patients at, at a much broader sense. Yes, that, that's very exciting. And I think this next one falls into that, that PIK3CA mutation. Um, I think that that's a, that's a tumor mutation, right? Not a germline mutation. That's correct. That's an acquired mutation. And, and thank you for making that distinction. Most of the mutations we pick up in cancer are acquired mutations, and that means they're not in the germline. They're not in the DNA that you carry in your body and pass on to your children. A few of them are, like BRCA1 and 2, but most of them are acquired. And the reason that that happens is that 
as I mentioned earlier, cancer is a, a selection of the fittest. And just like bacteria and viruses, if they develop a way to become resistant, they start to then, you know, overpopulate and uh, survive and, and they can become difficult to deal with and difficult to treat. Most of our cells are very tightly regulated. If you look at in an adult body, the number of cells that are dividing is well under 1%. Most of the cells are just sitting there doing what they're supposed to do. They're either an enzyme or they're a structural, they're holding the body together, but they're not dividing. You know, the obviously the bone marrow cells are dividing and some of the skin cells are, but they're very tightly regulated. We have a lot of check, checks and balances in our body that tell cells to stay still, don't grow. And then when the, it's the right time to grow, certain signals go off. Well, those can be co-opted um, if there's a mutation. And if a muta and mutations happen all the time, they're random events. Um, and especially as we get older, more mutations happen. Uh, there are certain things that can prompt more mutations like tobacco smoking and sunlight. And so those are carcinogenic exposures because they, they increase the rate of mutation. But if one in a million mutations actually makes a cell grow faster, most mutations lead to death of a cell and you never hear from it again. But every now and then it happens to be just in the right place, uh, like a growth factor, and it makes the cell grow faster. Well, guess what? Those cells now have a selective advantage over all the other ones and they're going to be selected for it. So it's almost, you would think everybody will get cancer over some time if you have billions of cells in your body multiplying. And the fact is we do, but our immune system, not only our immune system, there's other systems in our body that can sense these mutations and auto disrupt the cell. We actually have suicide pathways built into cells. It's called apoptosis. And, um, when, when you have a mutation that happens, but every now and then all the defense mechanisms, you know, by random chance, uh, might be overrun. Now, sometimes it's not just random chance. Some people have a variety of inherited abnormalities and DNA repair genes like BRCA1 that I mentioned earlier, but others as well. Uh, but for the most part, our body is pretty good at picking them up. And when cancer develops, it's because there was a breakdown either in the immune system or the DNA repair. And sometimes it's just chance. The most common cause of cancer is just random chance. Now, obviously, there are certain predisposing factors, either environmental or genetic. Because of that, uh, we can catalog now large numbers of mutations just by observing this. And one of the benefits of the Human Genome Project uh, which had been a goal from the 80s onward. And it took forever, but as soon as next-gen sequencing, which was an amazing invention in the early 2000s, it allowed us to sequence the genome much more quickly. And now we have a template of what the gene should look like in normal patients. And the next effort was uh, was, was the TCGA, the, the Cancer Genome Atlas, uh, which was funded and finished in, in around 2010. Uh, it's still going on, really, in different forms. But it, what it what it was is a snapshot of tumors at diagnosis. What are the mutations? Where are they? And this was a quantum leap in our knowledge to catalog all the mutations across different tumors. One of them was PIK3CA. PIK3CA is part of a, a very important growth factor pathway, which are which is employed by many growth factors. When a growth factor is activated, it has to transmit that signal down to the nucleus and the other parts of the cell to coordinate growth. And those signal transduction pathways, as they're called, involve a chain reaction with many different proteins. And PIK3CA is one of them. And a mutation in that protein can stick that pathway in the on position and happens to be one of the more common mutations uh, in breast cancer, particularly in hormone receptor positive breast cancer. If you look at newly diagnosed patients, 
and sequence PIK3C, about 40% of them will have a mutation in that particular gene. Uh, we don't know why that particular type of breast cancer, and you do see it in triple negative cancers, and you see it in other types of cancer as well, but that's notable uh, as one of the more common ones. And there's different types of cancers where mutations in this pathway are, are more prevalent. Uh, so upon the discovery, and this really came around the time that the TCJ was published, which was around 2013 or so, uh, and we started learning about that. And then we started developing drugs that actually work against mutated PI3 kinase or the downstream pathways. And it became important now to test patients. And, and now that's one of the common genes that we test for. Of course, nowadays we're testing a whole panel of genes, and that's going to be one of the ones that's included. But we generally test that in patients. We're only using it in advanced breast cancer at the current time. So anybody with advanced breast cancer that's hormone receptor positive, we're generally going to be doing next-generation sequencing and testing for that. There is a, a drug now approved called the Altelacid for patients that have uh, certain types of PIK3CA mutations. And not all mutations are activating mutations. So when we do gene sequencing tests, one of these uh, next-generation sequencing tests, it's very important to have what's called annotation. You don't just get the raw data here, the mutations, but you get some explanation as to is this mutation one that is expected to actually be pathogenic to make the cell grow in an abnormal way and actually be an indication for a drug or not. And sometimes it's not clear because it's a mutation that just hasn't been reported. And then they have to sort of deduce what the sequence would do to the shape of the protein. And then they can give you a readout on that. So it's a very tricky area to have good annotation, but the, the science has really advanced to the point where we're using a lot of computer assisted technology and artificial intelligence to sort out what the meaning of these mutations is. And that is part of the report. So when an oncologist is sending next generation sequencing, they're getting troves of information. These reports are hundreds of pages long and, and the mutations have to be annotated and explained in such a way that it's useful to the doctor. Cause there's going to be these rare mutations I mentioned that would be, be an indication for a drug we commonly don't use. You see them occasionally in breast cancer and colorectal cancer, and then we use do we use those drugs, these melanoma drugs of all things, in breast cancer rarely, and so uh, we have to really understand the full report and what the nature of the mutation is in order to interpret it. Again, just to remind you, this is all an advanced breast cancer, but that's why it's important to send genomic testing off in anyone who uh, has advanced breast cancer and is interested in treatment because the results can sometimes really change the course of what we're uh, going to uh, recommend. Absolutely. And uh, there's another mutation that's relatively new, um, the ESR1 mutation, and that's the estrogen receptor. And if I'm correct, people with advanced stage disease and they've been receiving hormonal therapy, like it's very high. I want to say like 75 to 80% are going to develop a mutation in this, in this estrogen receptor, this ESR1, and then they stop responding to hormonal therapy. Am I, am I understanding all that correctly? That's correct. And it's very specific to a particular type of hormonal therapy. And, and this is what we call estrogen deprivation therapy when you're lowering the estrogen levels. And one of the common drugs we use, even in early stage breast cancer, is a class of drugs called aromatase inhibitors. And as we've known, as I mentioned earlier, estrogen is, is an important driver, particularly in hormone receptor positive cancers. And suppressing ovarian production of estrogen was one of the 
important uh, types of treatments that we still use today. But after menopause, there still is some estrogen in the body. And that comes from androgens that are com getting converted to estrogens because the ovaries are no longer producing estrogen, but the adrenal glands are making androgens and they can actually be converted to estrogens in the bloodstream or in the fat tissue where an enzyme that does this called aromatase uh, it converts it and you can block that enzyme with aromatase inhibitors and that lowers the estrogen level from still lo lower than premenopausal but down to an even lower level and that can make a difference in um, micro microscopic cells that may be hiding in the body so we use it in early stage breast cancer to lower the risk of recurrence because you know, when we're, the reason we treat patients with early stage breast cancer with things like chemotherapy and hormonal therapy is to address those microscopic cells we can't see, which years down the line can lead to recurrence. And when you lower estrogen levels, it, it is very effective at those cells. But every now and then, again, just it's selection of the fittest. If by random chance you get a mutation in the estrogen receptor that makes it now not need estrogen then what happens is you get these particular mutations in the estrogen receptor allow estrogen to be activated even without binding estrogen. Because normally when estrogen binds the estrogen receptor, it changes, a con it changes the shape of the estrogen receptor and it translocates to the nucleus where it then transcribes other genes and, and causes cell growth. That's the natural role of estrogen is to, is to cause growth of things like breast tissue, but other tissue too, bone marrow and everything. But when you happen to have an estrogen receptor positive cancer, uh, then uh, you um, that amount of estrogen can actually lead to cell growth. So selection of the fittest again, uh, those that have this estrogen cancer cells that have the estrogen mutation are now going to grow under cases of estrogen deprivation. So you're right. It, what you said earlier in patients who specifically are on aromatase inhibitors and they develop a recurrence, thirty to forty percent of those are actually going to have a mutation in the SR1. And we've known about ESR1 mutations for decades, but they were thought to be a rarity and no one really thought much about it until we sequenced them and realized what was going on is that the, the estrogen receptor mutations do make the estrogen receptor work autonomously, even without estrogen. So now um, when patients progress, especially on aromatase inhibitors, that is one of the panels we check. Of course, it almost gets checked automatically now because it's on all the panels. So when we do see an ESR1 mutation, number one, we know that aromatase inhibitors aren't going to work. But the drugs, there are drugs that can work, and these are drugs that degrade the estrogen receptor. They're called estrogen receptor degraders or downregulators. A Faslodex or Fulvisprant is one that we've had around for a while, and we, we have known that sometimes it can work for these ESR mutations. And when you're on Faslodex, you, you generally don't tend to get an estrogen receptor mutation like you get when you're on aromatase inhibitors. But, but it's not a very strong downregulator, and there's some newer, more potent downregulators, uh, including one called Elasisplant, which was just approved in January for patients who have ESR1 mutations. It's more effective hormonal therapy, and there's some newer drugs in development that are even more, that work even better. So, uh, you know, we expect some, some new um, therapies for patients with ESR1 mutations that are going to be Right. And and I know with uh, Alessistrand or Surdu, it's my understanding is we're a little bit more convenient for folks because it's a pill as opposed to Fazlodex, which is a poke in the butt, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. So so that's nice. And it's more effective, too. The, the right. study that led to its approval compared it to Fazlodex, to Silvestrand, and found it to be more effective. 
Right, which is also a very, very big plus. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about these mutations. So I know one thing that is sometimes checked for is something called tumor mutational burden, which my understanding is the amount of mutations that's actually in the cancer. So, uh, but when when would you test for that? And what does it mean when you get the results? Yes, uh, there are some people who... Um whose tumors have just a large, larger number of mutations than others. And we now realize that there are certain genes that are involved in this and can lead to uh, just more overall uh, mutations. And they have to deal with how DNA repairs itself and how, uh, and many other factors that can lead to higher rates of mutations. So there are some cancers that naturally have a higher tumor mutational burden. And uh, those tend to be cancers that arise in situations where they're getting external insults and carcinogenic insults like melanoma, getting UV ultraviolet radiation, or in uh, tobacco smokers who get lung cancer, those tend to have higher tumor mutational burdens. And um, it's postulated that when you have a lot of mutations that the immune system may recognize these tumors more. So they also tend to be those that are more immunogenic. And that's why melanoma and, and lung cancer were among the first to really benefit from immunotherapy is in part because they have a higher tumor mutational burden. There's probably other factors as well. Uh, but basically, it's a measure of how many mutations you have along the entire genome. So with next generation sequencing, you automatically get that information. Uh, and you can also get it with liquid biopsies, although liquid biopsies can't sequence the genome as entirely as well as a tumor biopsy. So the tumor mutational burden, even though you get a readout from the liquid biopsies, may not be as good as one that you get from uh, when you do it off the tumor itself. But because uh, the tumor mutational burden, higher ones, higher uh, TMBs, as we call it, have a better response to immunotherapy, there was actually a study that looked at patients with high tumor mutational burden and did a randomized study uh, with two of the uh, checkpoint inhibitors that we have now, Dastarlimab and Pembrolizumab, and found that these patients responded regardless of what tumor they had. So a high tumor mutational burden now opens the door to immunotherapy, even though you may not have pdl one or have the other reasons to get immunotherapy. And so um, that is something that you commonly get as a readout whenever you're uh, doing a genomic test. Uh, is the tumor mutational burden. You also get another um, somewhat similar test looking at mismatch repair, which is another way that we repair our DNA. And some people are deficient in mismatch repair, particularly in colorectal cancer, uterine cancer, certain brain tumors. These have a high proportion of mismatch repair, but you can sometimes also find it in breast cancer, not very common. But if you see that, that's another indication for getting immunotherapy regardless of pdl one so these are some of the benefits of next generation sequencing is sometimes you pick up a needle in a haystack and you get a drug that you never would have thought of for that patient only because of the genomic testing. And now that genomic testing is so widely available and all of the companies that do it now are using similar technology, they, they've almost gotten indistinguishable. They're, they used to be some of the ones that we all preferred over the others. But to be honest with you, they're all pretty good right now. What, what's more important now than just the sequencing, because I mean, high school students are doing next generation sequencing now, um, is really more the informational analysis of it is more important. 
then the actual technical uh, part of it is what to do with the information. Uh, you know, oncologists are getting reams of information, new drugs. It's, it's, it's really hard to be an oncologist and stay on top of these things if it weren't for all um, the tools that we need to have. You can go online. Uh, the report itself has to be readable and digestible. And it does benefit patients. And, and we're going to find more and more uh, things that we learn about uh, how to connect the genomic information to new drugs. So we're, we're only scratching the surface in this podcast. Yeah, yes, definitely. And scratching a lot of surfaces. I, I just want to clarify, too, though, about the tumor mutational burden. So it, from what you said, it sounds like something that that would sort of be part of other information you were getting when you were getting the the genomic profile of the tumor. And then the oncologist could decide like, oh, this is very high. Maybe we should consider some of these treatments. So it wouldn't necessarily be a test that you would just say, let's just look at that. It, it kind of comes with the other information. That's correct. When you send the test, you're looking for everything because you can develop a new mutation that may not have been picked up on an earlier test. It could be that the mutation was there, but it was so infrequent and present in such a small fraction of cells that it didn't get picked up. Over time, those cells are growing, the other ones aren't. You re-biopsy, now you find it. Uh, but you're also going to get the tumor mutational burden. That doesn't shift as much, but it can shift also from one test to another. So it's pretty much standard now. They, they run it most of the times when you're ordering next-generation sequencing. It used to be that you'd have to order what gene you wanted, but now they're just sequencing the whole thing. And um, you get it whether you just get everything. Okay. Okay. And then um, lastly, at least in my mind, lastly, for things that might be tested for is, uh, you mentioned it earlier, circulating tumor DNA. And um, and I guess I'm a little unclear, like, when would you look for that? I know liquid biopsies, I've been hearing about them for a while. I still hear that maybe they're not ready for prime time. Some people are doing them. Some people aren't doing them. When do you do a circulating tumor DNA test and what do you do with the information? Well, circulating tumor DNA, you're looking at the same mutations that you would on a tumor. Uh, and uh, the cells, uh, tumor cells release them into the bloodstream and you can you can sequence them. It's not as sensitive as you might imagine because you're getting much more DNA from a tumor than you are from a small amount that's in the blood. But um, sometimes it's just a more convenient way to do it. Sometimes it's not safe to get a biopsy because of where the tumor is. And so we do uh, send them liquid biopsies. It's easier to send, uh, less invasive. And um, as the technology gets better, it'll probably get closer and closer to approaching what a, a real biopsy gives you. But when you have an opportunity to get a real biopsy, it's probably better because there are certain mutations like PIK3CA, where if you don't see it in the blood, yet you've got hormone receptor positive breast cancer where you definitely want to know, then you actually go to tumor to get it. Now, ESR mutations, oddly enough, are easier to pick up with blood than tumor. It's one of the few that goes that way. And that's because ESR1 mutations tend to be subclonal. They tend to develop later. So only some proportion of the cells are going to have it. And um, if you have multiple tumors in the body, it's possible that some have ESR1 mutations and others don't. But the ones that have ESR1 mutations may be you know, more aggressive, right? So you still want to know, even if it's a small population, you still might use a lasisplant, for example. So in that situation, it's actually better to do a liquid biopsy. But for most of the other mutations, um, we, we tend at least at some point in the patient's trajectory to get a tumor biopsy. Uh, but because we're now sequencing more often and upon recurrence, because new mutations might develop, the, the blood one seems to be more convenient. The best time to use a blood um, assay is when a patient is having progression. 
uh, because once they get treated, the amount of DNA, circulating tumor DNA goes down. And so uh, that's when we tend to do it. Someone's progressing, we might get a liquid biopsy at that point in time. Or, or sometimes when one area is progressing, we'll, then we'll actually get a, a biopsy because we end of that area because that's maybe where the action is and we may want to look at that. Uh, this whole idea of tu tumoral heterogeneity, that not all the tumors are the same, is, is a complicating feature, but we're recognizing that that's the reality and, and um, our technology needs to adapt to be able to uh, be able to widely survey uh, everything that's in the body. Okay. Now, what is the difference if you're going to test for circulating tumor DNA versus circulating tumor cells? Because I've read about both. Uh, it seems like DNA would give you more information, but that's just my impression as a non-oncologist. So would you order both tests for one person or is one more preferable than the other? Does it give you different information? It, it does give you different information. First of all, circulating tumor cells are less common in patients with cancer. Um, the technology to detect them has improved. We can detect you know, much smaller numbers, but only 5 to 10% of patients may have circulating tumor cells. That number is going to be higher when they're progressing versus when they're on a treatment that's working. Even in early stage breast cancer, we sometimes see circulating tumor cells, but circulating tumor DNA is um, a little more uh, uh, efficient and you can sequence it more easily. You can, if you happen to see circulating tumor cells, you can sequence them, but it's much harder. So circulating tumor cells are helpful in prognostication, uh, but we're not using them so much in diagnosis anymore. They're still important research tools and there's a lot of interesting research around them. Uh, but I would say that that technology is falling out of favor due to its complexity and the fact that it's not capturing everything. Uh, but but it is prognostic, and there still is is a role for it, and and certainly in the research area, it, it's an important tool. Okay, and then a couple other experimental, uh, at least as far as I understand, uh, biomarkers are tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, and you talked about lymphocytes earlier. That's a type of immune cell, and then stromal tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So if you could tell us just a little bit about each of those and, and how, I guess they're more being used in research is my understanding than sort of a test that you might order commonly for somebody diagnosed with cancer. Um, if you could talk a little bit about those. Yeah, that's right. It's not being used really in routine clinical practice, but we've known for years that people who have uh, lymphocytes around their tumor have a better outcome. They actually do better with early stage breast cancer and especially triple negative breast cancers that are getting uh, standard treatment, which has been chemotherapy for many years. The outcome of those patients is better. Uh, now we know that that probably has to do with the fact that these tumors are more immunogenic, although it may be more complicated than that. And not only are you getting um, lymphocytes in the area of the tumor itself, but you get in the peritumoral area too. And so you'll get stromal uh, TILs or tumor infiltrated lymphocytes. And both of those are prognostic of a better outcome, even without immunotherapy. Even if you just get chemotherapy, those patients do better. We're not routinely using it yet in decision analysis. Um, at some point, we probably will once we learn uh, more about the outcomes of these patients. And it may help us decide sharpen a little more uh, who should get this treatment versus that treatment, whether it's immunotherapy or, or chemotherapy or certain types of chemotherapy, like platinum-based chemotherapies, which seem to be more effective in the more immune tumors, as well as in BRCA uh, mutated tumors, which also, by the way, 
tend to have more immunogenicity and we tend to see uh, uh, infiltrating lymphocytes more in, in tumors that have DNA repair deficiencies. And again, maybe because they have more mutations. Uh, but in any event, it still is a research tool, but a lot of people are building it into their prognostic models. So I suspect at some point we will be integrating it to, to make treatment decisions as we get more data. Okay. Dr. Chapathy, we have talked about a lot of biomarkers. Um, are there any that you important ones that you feel like we've missed? I feel like there are probably more experimental ones that we could talk about, but are there important ones that, that are more commonly tested for that... Um, I just have overlooked or that we didn't talk about. Oh, no, you've done, you've done a great <laughs> job in covering all of these. I think we've talked a, a lot about, um, you know, the basic ones that are used in treatment decision-making and even the ones that are sort of in the research field, but I think may someday, uh, be important. Uh, so, um, I will think about that question longer and I may come back to you later, uh, with, with more comments on that because the field is moving so rapidly. Uh, but certainly we will be developing a bigger framework uh, with more markers over time and better uh, support tools so that physicians and patients alike can, can know what to do with this information. And it really becomes a responsibility, really a societal responsibility for us to educate everybody and, and to make sure it's widely available. The good news about genomics is that it's actually relatively less expensive than many of the other things we do. I mean, in China, I, I visited some of the hospitals there. They've got Illumina 500 sequencers, a whole floor of the hospital just running nonstop. They're sequencing a lot of their tumors. Yeah, they're just starting to, but they're, you know, and other countries are too. So I think that this is going to become even more broadly available and accelerate and really turn the lights on the road for us to really see where we're driving. Dr. Jabadi, thank you so much for helping us understand this very complicated topic. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.